lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. Let's get it going here today on Blaze TV. Steve Dace here with Todd Erzin and Aaron McIntyre, live and on demand on Blaze TV radio and podcast. Today we will discuss... The name of the forthcoming book I wanted to mention that we're going to be talking about, uh, or talking to its author about, The War on Ivermectin, The Medicine That Saved Millions and Could Have Ended the COVID Pandemic. Dr. Pierre Corey is the author. He joins us now here on the Steve Day Show on Blaze TV. And uh, Dr. Corey, it's an honor to have you back, brother. How are you? Yeah, thanks. It's good to be back. Nice to talk to you. We got to probably reconnect with his phone, Aaron. You got a kind of crummy phone connection there? Yep. All right. So we'll reconnect with him here and get back to him here in just a moment. But um, there was a lawsuit, by the way, we didn't have time to talk about it. Uh, There was a key lawsuit filed in Washington yesterday, a federal lawsuit, uh, essentially suing the government for the denial of ivermectin as a legit treatment for COVID-19. And just to kind of reset the, and, and here's hoping that this lawsuit will bring a lot of the data uh, and a lot of the truth of what went on here to bear. I'm all for winning on technicalities and getting exceptions, doing whatever you can do to exempt yourself from this kind of medical fascism, medical tyranny. But at some point, we actually need, though, to go after the premise of all of it. And that's what I like about the potential of this lawsuit, provided they can get standing in a court is it may bring out a lot of the truth of the data that we'll talk now with Dr. Pierre Corey about. Do we have him yet? We've got him connected. We'll all right, Dr. Corey, there you are. Good to have you on our show, brother. So, in fact, let's start with that lawsuit in Washington that was filed yesterday. And I'm, I'm sure one of the great frustrations that you've had over these last 26 months is an honest hearing of the data as opposed to things that are presented as slanted in the media, uh, presented as slanted in medical journal journals. You know, discovery in a court of law, if we still have those, Pierre, is a two-way street. Yep. Is there an opportunity here to get to some get some real data out there that maybe the public has not been shown? I think it's an opportunity. I mean, I, I've said for a long time, it's time for the lawyers, it's time for the judges. I mean, it's time for the courts. I mean, we've done everything we could to get good, pragmatic, sound, data-driven, evidence-based uh, advice out there, and we get attacked for it. And and like you mentioned, I mean, we get attacked with narratives and and clearly control of, of these agencies that are essentially working with pharmaceutical companies, right? They do not want a generic repurposed drug. And the actions they've taken to try to suppress the evidence of efficacy has been vast, and, and it's been rapacious for, for over a year now. And so I hope this, this can serve to open up what's really going on, which is they're suppressing the data, that they're selectively presenting and, and misrepresenting the actual data. Let's, so it's let- an information. Pardon me. Let's get into the data then, Dr. Corey. Let's let's start with what you have seen on a on a personal level as a physician that has treated people for COVID-19 since the early days of the pandemic. Share some of the data that you have seen firsthand with our audience, please. So first off, you know, I, I wrote the definitive review paper over a year ago. And after we discovered and saw some trials popping up from around the world, I started using it in my practice. 
And we, I mean, my first patient, my first patient had been sick for two weeks. Uh, she was actually an executive of a, of a healthcare staffing agency. She's the CEO and she'd been sick for two weeks. She still had fever. She had a resting heart rate of 120, uh, just in bed. She felt terribly ill. She was home. She took ivermectin on a Sunday night and Monday morning, she had no fever. Her heart rate was 80 and she felt like the cloud had lifted. This is my first patient. And that experience continued for many, many months and is shared by many doctors around the world that our patients time and time again will report some mitigation, some lessening of some important symptom. Um, now, it's not every single patient, but it's the vast majority. And, you know, obviously, as the variants got, you know, higher viral loads and, and you know, like the late Delta phase, you know, I was using uh, combinations of medicines. But in the beginning, ivermectin alone was absolutely uh, a very robust medicine. And that's just on my personal experience. Right. And that's, you know, which which the system, uh, you know, medical system as it exists, they consider that the lowest form of experience. It's only the it's only what's driven all advancements in medicines for you know hundreds of years <laughs> is, is the experience and observations of a physician, but in modern medicine, that's discounted as anecdotal. Um, but it's real. It's there. Anyone who puts it into their practice can see that it works. In fact, I've never heard of a doctor who's used it in their practice who says it doesn't work. The only people who say it doesn't work are those who don't use it. During the initial wave of the pandemic, how many patients would you estimate you treated with ivermectin? Well, here's the thing, though. I didn't use ivermectin until my first patient I used it on was October of 2020. Okay. We, you know, we all in therapeutics as an organization, we were building protocols. They're mostly directed at the hospital. And there was no good clinical data until kind of the summer of 2020 that you started hearing that ivermectin was working. But the first trials to come out were like October of 2020 when we started to see like trials popping up from different areas of the world that were all really positive. And, and so I started uh, using it October of 2020, and at this point, many hundreds, three, four hundred for me. Um, and uh, I've had two hospitalizations and one death. Wow. Um, and the, the death was an 87-year-old with a number of comorbidities. Um, and, and the only other person who went to the hospital was someone who reached out to me on, like, day 11 of symptoms. Um, but, you know, early on, I mean, it just – nobody goes to the hospital if you treat early. One of the things that I, I, I don't think has been pointed out enough about doctors such as yourself or McCullough, Urso, et cetera, that have kind of been yep. this um, resistance for lack or rebel alliance, for lack of a better description, yep. um, is that you, you guys, unlike a lot of other places, you're not picking and, and choosing or cherry picking the most promising of patients here. I mean, you guys, you're, no. getting, you're getting emails and phone calls from people like me who are referring everybody in our audiences to you guys all of the time. And so yep. that's why I that's why I think your anecdotal data carries a little bit more weight, Dr. Corey, because oh, you yeah. got you guys were often getting patients who were on their last legs or out of hope because they could get nowhere with their with their traditional medical practice physician or or primary care physician and they're coming to you out of desperation and yet this data was still that promising. Yep. I mean, yeah, you're exactly right. We would take all comers at any time, all ages, uh, shapes, sizes. I mean, we, we treat anyone who's ill that reaches out to us, and, and we all know that it works. You know, McCullough knew hydroxychloroquine work. You know, I never really used it because I wasn't doing a lot of outpatient medicine in the early wave. I was buried in ICUs. 
Um, but, you know, when I started using hydroxychloroquine, especially around Omicron, I mean, I was seeing it was, it was equally effective as ivermectin. And in some cases, I felt it even was stronger. And so, you know, but the war on hydroxychloroquine was fought in 2020. I mean, they, they tried mm -hmm. to destroy that medicine every which way from Sunday. I, I happen to be an expert at the tactics against ivermectin because I, came, I became one of the world experts. And so the amount that I knew and what I knew to be true about ivermectin and what I saw being propagated throughout from the, the tops of the agencies to blaring from every major media. It was essentially a PR campaign against ivermectin. And, and I had to watch lives, you know, huge portions of the country and world being swayed from using ivermectin. Doctors being told not to use it. Doctors becoming convinced that it was a horse dewormer and it was a nonsense medicine. I mean, it was all propaganda, Steve. You recently did a three-part series on your Substack, taking apart a much ballyhooed, quote-unquote, study on ivermectin. Can you give us kind of a summation of that, Pierre? Yeah, so so let's, I, I definitely will. But here's the deal. I have to put it into context. That trial is what I would call a textbook example of how the pharmaceutical industry manipulates science. They know how to design and conduct studies to fail. So if they want to show the efficacy of a drug, they know how to design that. They do that with all of their products. They, and they also manipulate data. And this is well described over decades. There's books written about pharmaceutical manipulations of studies that they themselves sponsor. The TOGETHER trial, which was done in Brazil, which is the world's, you know, to date, the largest randomized control trial, um, I wrote it in my substack. I mean, there's literally 47 different actions they took to try to show that ivermectin doesn't work. From one of the most basic and most egregious is they allowed the control group easy access to ivermectin. Steve, it's really hard to show a medicine is better than itself. Like when you have a group that gets ivermectin and the control group also gets ivermectin and you don't show any benefit to ivermectin because <laughs> they were all on ivermectin. Mm -hmm. and, and so, I mean, that was just the most brazen of tactics that they did. But they did other slightly less subtle, not that subtle, slightly less subtle, like they did not, they did not produce tablets that looked the same. The, the tablets that they use for ivermectin was the most common brand in Brazil, which is found over the counter. The entire country was using it. The government was even saying to use it, and that's where they conducted the trial with absolutely open access to ivermectin with a very recognizable pill. And the placebo tablets did not look the same. I mean, it's, it's absurd what they did. And that's the only two big ones. Other things are they limited the dose, they limited the duration, and – we believe, and we, we actually, I, I, I know this, uh, I, well, let's say this, I strongly believe, we believe that they actually showed a massive benefit to ivermectin and they had to manipulate the data to bury it. Now, we can't prove that because they won't share the data, but I will tell you that data is hidden. They have public statements saying that the data would be available to all upon request at the end of the trial, and all of the investigators have gone dark. They're not answering questions. They're not in the press, and the data is nowhere. They said they would put the data with an organization called ICODA. ICODA doesn't have the data. They are hiding. They know this was a fraudulent trial. But guess what? Without help of the media, 
or of the journal, so the New England Journal of Medicine, which is where they published it, by design. Remember, they, they get free reign to get their studies into the biggest medical journals of the world. That's what drives headlines. New York Times, Washington Post, L.A. Times, screaming headlines that ivermectin doesn't work, almost with glee, based on this fraudulent trial. And, and like I said, this is not unique to ivermectin. They did it with hydroxychloroquine. They've done it with numbers of things over the years, from vitamin C trials, vitamin D trials. Anything that threatens their bottom line as a generic repurposed drug, it's been a decades-long war. And I just am trying to call out what they did to ivermectin. It's absolutely egregious. Well, it's all egregious, but this takes the case. I mean, this is a, a mass. This, this is a mass impact on humanity. Final question. I've got about a minute then, Dr. Corey. Along those lines, has there ever been this level of effort to discredit a Nobel Prize winning medication in the history of modern medicine? No, I, I think the, the impacts of this, they've, they've done lots of things to destroy medicines before, but the consequences of what they did in a global pandemic against one of the most safest, like you pointed, safest, most widely available, most inexpensive medicine, because that literally, it has the qualities to be a global cure to the pandemic. They had to destroy it. Because the entire markets for everything would dry up. Paxlovid, Molnupiravir, vaccines, and on and on. The hospitals would, would empty. And, and so this was, this is, I would say it's the most threatening single medicine to the bottom line of the pharmaceutical industry in the history of medicine. Wow. The single most, and that's why I'm writing a book. And the name of that book is The War on Ivermectin, The Medicine That Saved Millions and Could Have Ended the COVID Pandemic. Dr. Pierre Corey been one of the heroes of the last 26 months brother thank you for joining us again good to talk to you all right take care yeah. thanks Steve. you bet thoughts on the conversation we just had with pierre Corey. this may this may um i i, I don't know maybe uh, ring up something from the memory but i believe there are a couple of war games kind of game theorying and planning out what a I don't know, a theoretical uh, outbreak of a novel coronavirus might look like. I think one of them was in, I think, the fall, October, November of uh, 2019. I seem to remember, at least with one of these war games, one of the things that was talked about was a cheap, widely available drug that would actually help treat the virus. Correct. You're right about this. Yeah. All of the time... All of the time you hear about you hear Bill Gates and all of these globalists and all of these people who the, the schemers, the ones who make the plans for your life. Whenever it talks about uh, health and whenever it talks about viruses and outbreaks, it's always one solution. It's always one solution. The vaccine. What's the benign, innocent explanation for that? I hate that question. I'm asking it myself more and more often. What's the benign, innocent explanation for that? There isn't one. There isn't one. The best case scenario is is it's just greed. Yes. The worst case scenario is there's a lot of worst case scenarios. Nikolai. Yeah. Nikolai is the worst case scenario. Yeah. Todd? Science has become journalism. It's all narrative now. And Steve said, even under the best of uh, circumstances in the past, he's told you there, there's no way to pull that completely out of journalism. But the whole point of the scientific revolution was to do exactly that. Yeah. And now... It's totally flipped. It's all narrative in science. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace.
The Steve Day Show. Let's bring in the prophet of woe and lamentation, who's an hour early this week. We appreciate him being flexible with the schedule. Good to see you, my friend. And uh, Daniel Horowitz is here with us. And I was uh, reading something that you were writing this morning on Twitter, looking at last night's primary results, including right here in my home state of Iowa, where I think it was at least four Republican incumbents lost to more conservative primary challengers, including uh, the 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 state uh, house chairman on education, he lost a primary uh, over the school choice issue, and you've noted that there have actually been a lot of very promising results along these lines in state house races all over the country this primary cycle. But when we get to the more expensive statewide races, governor, senator, we're we're not doing well in those primaries, and and to me, I think the good news where that is concerned is. That's the farm team that the, those state legislatures are where the next round of our senators, congressmen, and governors are going to come from in the next 10 years, right? But the bad news is, how much of America is going to be left by the time their time emerges? And, and this is kind of my dilemma, is that for the first time in my career, Daniel, I feel as if we're actually getting on the path of the kind of activism, skepticism, and confrontationalism necessary for what is infecting this culture. But I fear that we are on, we started on this path about 10 years too late. Where are you at? No, Steve, that is the path we've always been on. It's an illusion. Uh, you answered your own question that we've we've been we've been here before it's always a day late a dollar short when we need a five we're at a three when we need a 10 we're at a seven so yeah in a vacuum some of our people or more of our people are so to speak red pilled than ever on certain things but the devastating consequences of the implementation of the communist agenda is so real we're not in the 90s where, you know, Ross Perot warned that, hey, you know, if you keep this up, we're going to have we're going to be like Greece. We're going to have funny money. We're in that, whether it's fiscal, cultural, whatever it is, demographic, security, uh, tyranny. We're at that point. We're suffering it. So, yeah, people will rhetorically get a little bit more aggressive. And I do think locally we are making strides on school boards and state legislatures. Um, but unless we work at this during the off season. Okay, not just during the election, every 2 years in November, but every day in between and pressure them on the issues and make them fear us. We're not going anywhere because again, it's it's worthless. I mean, at this point, you need I, I have an article out today on the need for states to revisit the commerce clause and just do what it takes to, to, to save people from the economic controlled demolition of our federal government. They have violated the social compact. So you can no longer use the same traditional means. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of getting there, but not a single governor has lost a seat, not a single lockdown governor, not a single senator, not a single congressman so far, although there might be one or two, but only because of scandals in the end. Um, but this is where it's at. And basically, I think you had you had it right that, you know, you kind of gave up on primaries years ago and said you're going to focus on red pilling our people mm -hmm. because clearly we haven't created the market for it. The common denominator is when there's a, a stark battle line drawn, like you voted for Trump's impeachment, you voted for that commission. There's no doubt Liz Cheney will be soundly defeated because it was inundated uh, the voters were inundated with it. They understand it. They understand the players and they understand the issue. Um, and I think in Iowa, in a microcosm, you had the governor 
uh, jump on board the school choice issue that was understood. It was a specific thing. It was a lower ticket race. So the challengers didn't need as much money. You were able to succeed, and we're finding that throughout the country. But if it's just generically that we're getting killed on every issue and the Republicans are just balloons in the wind, our voters are turning out with a general election mindset with record turnout in the primaries, and they're just voting for the first name they know because the battle line is drawn against Biden. It's drawn against the Democrats. It's drawn in a general sense. The, the understanding that these Republicans are quietly in on it, and they're not going to affirmatively take any of the, those actions that are necessary to neutralize it and get on a better path. That is lost on those voters. It's our challenge to create that battle line so that in the future there's a market for for changing uh, leadership. Yesterday on the show, I read a letter I was get sent by one of the January 6thers, okay, um, who accepted a plea deal. Will still get because they threatened him with 20 years in prison. He never uh, broke anything, stole anything, went into the Capitol, but. Um, you know, he was, uh, he's guilty of uh, vociferously supporting Donald Trump and thinking the election was stolen basically, but he's also lost a six figure business works, minimum wage. He's at least going away for a while. Not sure what's going to happen with his family, things of that nature. And, and uh, we were talking about the letter here on the show after I read it. And, and I said something that kind of dawned on me at the time that I, I can't think of a singular issue or controversy or situation that better encapsulates the no man's land that we are in than what's happened to the nonviolent January 6thers. Because in, on one side, you have a Democrat party completely given over to a spirit of the age where it, it's, it, it's, demo, it's a demonic cult, and the part of it that isn't is just so zealously Marxist it might as well be. Okay. And, and so they will just do whatever they want. You know, yesterday was five months until the election. They have all the poll numbers. They know they're getting annihilated. We don't see them try to moderate on anything. They don't care. Okay. And then, you, and, and so we have a duopoly. And so then you turn to Republicans. And one of the things that this gentleman said in his note to me is, these guys, they don't care about people like us. They don't talk about people like us. They don't address people like us. Julie Kelly is from American Greatness, who has done more work covering this story than I think anybody in the country has pointed out on more than one occasion that nobody in Trump's orbit or Trump himself, uh, none of his organizations have come forward to offer these people better legal counsel or anything of that nature. A lot of them are just getting public defenders. And and to me, doesn't this just encapsulate where we truly are on our side, which is the other side is literally a demonic horde. I mean, they're just showing up now, with, you know, armed at Brett Kavanaugh's house like an hour ago. OK, um, um, and then on then the people that we are going to rush to vote for to save us when they when we really need them are just nowhere to be found and, 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 and cannot be counted upon. And yet we feel as if if we don't keep voting for these people, we'll just get more of the demonic horde. And this this cycle of, yeah. of drain circling just continues over and over again. And it will continue. And I think this perfectly encapsulates where we are and also the primary results. The problem is no one views Chuck Grassley at, you know, 117 years old as the guy with the, you know, being a drag queen, you know, doing the, the, the persecutions at DOJ and poisoning people. But nonetheless, he is in bed with uh, pharma. 
he is in bed with what he himself used to call the leniency industrial complex um, to let out uh, violent criminals, but then you know say nothing with regard to January 6. And he's certainly not going to do anything to stand athwart the cultural Marxism and say stop. But the problem is he doesn't reek of it. So the voters know the Democrats are doing it and they take the known name. And that's just in your state. But this is happening in every state. But we are at a point where doing nothing is not an option. They have the noose around our neck and they got the the, the slip knot in there. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you don't affirmatively take new actions and strategies and very strong actions different than things we've ever pursued, you're dead. You'll wind up in the same place as having the Democrats directly do it or default to Republicans ensuring that no one else arises to actively combat it. That's the problem we're at. And they'll broadly say they hate inflation, uh, the style and like Biden's doing this, uh, the illegals at the border. But on the things that matter, if you watch carefully, they will not touch it with a 10 foot pole because morality, what is just Facts don't matter. So January 6th is tainted. They're not touching it. Doesn't matter. Uh, the clot shots. Every day we come out with, uh, there's so much more information. Can, hold on one second. Let's go yeah. back to the January 6th thing. If they trotted those people out and shot them on site, right out there on the mall in Washington. You shouldn't have stormed the Capitol. You, you still think Republicans would be silent. Yes, you shouldn't have stormed the Capitol. They, they, they will not touch it the same way I was told, and I know this from some of the better Republican senators, there is no amount of information that could come out about the number of people killed and disabled from the bioweapons, greater number than anything we dreamt of al-Qaeda ever doing in a bioterror attack after 9-11. There is no information that will prompt Republicans to oppose the shots, even on children. They're, next week, they're doing it on babies and toddlers, and the Florida uh, Surgeon General is the only one mm-hmm. that's speaking out against it. There's nobody, nobody else. I guess Senator Ron Johnson has nobody else, nobody else, including some of the better ones. They oppose mandates, they say, but it's like saying, you know, we're going to have a Planned Parenthood mandate everywhere, uh, you know, set up everywhere, but just don't mandate it. That's kind of what they're doing. They will not touch it. And Steve, if they're not willing to do that in the minority when they're more feisty, they're not doing that in the majority. So then maybe the political hope here is this post-COVID coalition of truth tellers from various persuasions that have kind of emerged, probably best signified by Naomi Wolf and Steve Bannon working together. Yes. Maybe that's where the the future hope is here then. The only hope in my mind, and I, I'll say it till I'm blue in the face, aside from obviously working the issues at the county, state legislative level, uh, not just the elections, but the issues, I think working back against the culture, canceling the cancelers, this is all important, the anti-grooming movement. Mm-hmm. Um, electorally, I'm not saying don't vote for the, the, the idiot Republicans. Do what you want. It doesn't even matter. But at the very minimum, we should at least try to take somewhat of a risk in some states where we can to try to go independent with a new sort of coalition that could draw from all sorts of areas so you're not limited to to Republicans and at least have a chance of winning in a three-way race 
that speaks to the issues of our time. Because I will tell you, we we almost do not have a single statewide candidate anywhere running on the issues that matter in the way they matter at the time they matter. I'm going to say this, man. Uh, proud two-time Obama voter Robert Malone reading his substack. He's about five minutes from being to the right of Ted Cruz on virtually everything at this point. So I'll, I'll say that. Exactly. That's what we need. <laughs> Robert Malone. So, if someone with that profile to run in a general election and loudly, loudly draw um, attention to the victims of the clutch. So a different kind of Ross Pro basically is what you're talking about. That's what we need. Yeah. The country was ready for it in 92. The polling shows he just wasn't. Remember, now. he dropped out when he got ahead, then claimed it as the whole crazy thing with his weddings, daughter's wedding, and oh, then got man. back in the race after he realized I had no chance to win. The he didn't. He did, Satan. We would have yeah. been a different country if not for that. He didn't want to be president. He, he self-sabotaged that back then. Good stuff, Daniel. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. Take care. God bless. Well, he was one of President Trump's longest serving, most loyal advisors, particularly on issues of trade and China. He's got a forthcoming book that you can pre-order right now on Amazon.com coming out later this fall. Taking back Trump's America, why we lost the White House and how we'll win it back. The name, of course, is Peter Navarro. He's been a guest on our show before, and he's been in the news recently because, of course, he is now in the crosshairs of the January 6th committee and the regime, and he joins us here on Blaze TV. Good to have you back on the show, Peter. How are you? I'm great to see you. See, I appreciate you being on here. I got the uh, Department of Justice here loosely turned behind me in one of these cubicles. These people are plotting to put me in prison with a charge Steve, that's unprecedented in our nation's history. This has never happened. I mean, taking uh, a, a senior White House advisor uh, away in leg irons after an assault at the airport with five agents. And I appreciate you putting that taking Trump, Trump uh, America back book, taking back Trump's America back book. That's my legal defense fund. Uh, this is good. You know, it's like I've been doing this case pro se, meaning representing myself. I filed a, a civil suit on Tuesday of last week. I guess they didn't like me standing up for the Constitution because by Friday uh, they, they put me in leg irons. And, um, yeah, I'm talking to lawyers now trying to figure out how to get a defense. And we're talking like up to a half a million dollars. Wow. For this. So if people out there in, in, in Days Land can help me taking back Trump's America on Amazon, if I could sell 100,000 of those books, which is about a tenth of what Mark Levin sells and his great book, uh, I'll be able to pay for this. But this is what they do, Steve. It's like it's called lawfare. What they try to do with mm -hmm. the Trump people in this two-tiered system of justice is to bind us down, take our time, take our money, and in my case, actually try to put me in prison. And that, <laughs> I mean, that, you've got a discredited Russia hoax back in 2016 implicating people in the FBI and the Justice Department, uh, the, the, the Brennan and Clapper and the Obama administration. These people are walking free as a bird. They're letting people out all over this country with these George Soros prosecutors who have done like violent assault 
and me, yeah, all 145 pounds of me, they feel like they got to like take me down in an airport and put me in leg irons. I mean, people, you need to be as outraged about this as, as I am, because if they come for me, they're coming for Trump. And if they can come for me and Trump, they're coming for you. What would they say, Peter, is is deserving of, of such harsh treatment? What have you done other than being Trump adjacent? All right. What else have yeah. you done? Would they claim is is, <clears throat> is, is is makes you such a danger here? Well, I think I filed a civil suit which argues four points of the law and key constitutional issues that they simply don't want to accept. The backstory for this, Steve, is you've got this kangaroo committee um, on Congress that that putatively is supposed to be looking at the violence on January 6th. But if you look very carefully at the committee, by the way, my lawsuits at PeterNavar.com, you can, you, first of all, um, Pelosi did not follow the own rules of the committee, so it's not duly authorized or properly constituted. It's, it's like nine never Trumpers with an ax to grind. And right there, you don't have legally enforceable subpoenas. So right there, I'm a free man. In addition, you've got separation of powers, meaning that, yeah, most of your viewers think that Congress has the right to investigate. That's true. But not for punitive purposes, You only for legislative purposes. This committee, um, behind the facade of a legislative function, is acting as judge, jury, and execution with the sole goal, you'll see this in prime time on Thursday night, to build a criminal case against Donald Trump to prevent him from being president in 2025. So there, there's that. Now, here's the biggest thing legally. This is an issue that the Supreme Court has to deal with now because— I uh, told the committee and later the Department of Justice and the FBI that an executive privilege of Donald Trump is not mine to waive. So when they command me to appear and an executive privilege applies, I, I, I must do my duty, right? It's not mine to waive. What they should have done was go and negotiate the privilege directly with Trump and his attorneys. To my knowledge, they did not even try to do that. Mm. Instead, what they did, here's the thing. This is so, so disingenuous. They had Joe Biden, as a sitting president, write me a letter and say, you don't have executive privilege. You don't have testimony immunity. Effectively, the incumbent stripping Trump of executive privilege. Now, executive privilege goes back to George Washington. And the whole point of executive privilege and testimonial immunity for people like me in the White House is to allow us to have candid conversations so good presidential decisions get made. And the law is strongly supportive of that. And here they're trying to blow that up with this fanciful and absurd notion, no case law on this, that says Biden can strip Trump of the privilege. It's it's just wrong. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, they want to put me in prison. That's the bottom line. They put me in leg irons. You know, here's the funny thing, Steve. And, and it wasn't, it was, to me, it was almost absurdly funny at the time. They, they take me down at the airport when they, they the, their office is literally right across the street. And they could have kind of just peacefully taken me in the morning at my house. Um, 
And when when they take me down with five agents, all 145 pounds of me, I ask the agent, this guy, Walter Giordano. These people have names. Walter Giordano, FBI agent. Hey, Walter, it's like I, I need to call for legal advice. And I He wouldn't let me. I repeated it. I, I repeat, repeatedly asked him to do that. He confiscates my phone, seals it up in an evidence bag, and I don't get to talk to an attorney. I mean, these are the kinds of strong arm tactics this Biden regime is doing to shut people up who want to protect the Constitution uh, and the rights of the American people. And I got this two-tiered system of justice. It's like <laughs> these Russia hoax people walk free as a bird. And a guy like me who's doing nothing but trying to defend the Constitution uh, winds up in leg irons. So by <laughs> taking back Trump's America on Amazon, that's my legal defense fund. And I Please help me out here. Peter, have you have you considered a career change? Have you considered maybe becoming a uh, a drug mule or a human trafficker at the border? Have you considered perhaps burning an American city to the ground or yeah. taking nine square blocks yeah. of Seattle and consider and calling it an occupied yeah. territory? I mean, drag queen, drag queen, uh, you know, maybe uh, parading yourself as a drag queen in front of little kids at a Texas bar, no. because there's apparently yeah. all kinds of things you can do to break the law that we don't punish people for. So have you considered yes. maybe advancing into those <laughs> criminal endeavors? <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to write my new book after this was how to wind up, uh, not wind up in leg irons in the in the American Justice Department. Oh, do do like assault and run drugs instead of standing up for the Constitution. I take your point, Steve. It is a good one. But, you know, the really serious issue here that I raise in my lawsuit is the weaponization of Congress's investigatory powers um, for partisan purposes. And one of the things I do in the lawsuit is go over the five-year history of the seven Democrats on that kangaroo committee um, and illustrate vividly how, dating back to the Russia hoax through two impeachment trials and three House resolutions, all seven of those are implicated in efforts basically to topple the government, to take Donald Trump out of office using this lawfare and weaponizing the investigatory powers of Congress. They don't like it when I call them on that, but that's what they're doing, Steve. And and this republic, I mean, look, the backstory for all of this is mothers can't get baby formula. Gas is through the roof. I've never, I'm an economist by training. I've never seen the macro economy in worse shape. We got an invasion on the Southern border, chaos, in the Ukraine, we're guarding Ukraine's border better than our own. And this, this is what the Department of Justice is focusing on. Never, never in the, I want to emphasize this, Steve, nobody, nobody has ever been treated by the Department of Justice like I am being treated now. And it's only because my association with Donald Trump and my defense of the Constitution. This is, this People across the political aisle should be outraged at this. If you are outraged at this and you want to support Peter's legal defense, again, the name of the book, Taking Back Trump's America, Why We Lost the White House and How We'll Win It Back. It is due out later this fall, but pre-sales are going on right now. And uh, Peter, always appreciate your candidness. Thanks for joining us again. And please keep us up to date if there's any more we can do to help support your cause. All right. 
Yes, sir. And, and th thanks for the time. Uh, we, we need to stand together. If they can come for me, they can come for all of us. Thank you, brother. Take care. Take care, man. All right, that's Peter Navarro. Um, let me tell you, maybe it's kind of an awkward time to talk about a product line called Viciously Loyal <laughs> after that interview, but there was a time uh, that we were viciously loyal as a people about our beliefs, our families, our community, our country, and the, the long line of servicemen and women who have established the company Viciously Loyal, they want to bring that back. All right, they're trying to return us back to some of that old magic uh, because these are people that have chosen to be servants. Uh, they have uh, done that in their community, in the armed forces, all kinds of arenas, living their lives with purpose and everything they do. And that's one of the reasons why all viciously loyal gear is sold, designed and printed right here in the U.S. of A. If you want to give them a shot, an outstanding premium line of shirts, uh, T-shirts, tanks, hats and more designed to fit your individual style, no matter what it is, uh, go to viciouslyloyal.com viciouslyloyal.com and use my name Steve at the discount uh, for the discount code at the checkout to get 20% off your viciously loyal gear when you go to viciouslyloyal.com again that's viciouslyloyal.com use the discount code Steve and get a whopping 20% off discount discount code Steve at viciouslyloyal.com what do you guys think of the conversation we just had with Peter Navarro having been uh railroaded by the government myself uh in my past which we've talked about before uh i know how that can feel uh but what strikes me uh about peter is that last time we had him on the show however long that was ago uh, this guy in terms of tone temperament purpose communication style i don't remember it being any different at all or from him when he was in the white house i i like that because i can trust that because th this is they're trying to destroy him and he's right about the the fact that they did it at the airport on purpose they're just trying to humiliate people mm -hmm. uh it's it's ghastly people should go to jail it's the people who are doing this to him uh and i'm i'm just glad a guy who clearly has zero f's to give um is the guy then maybe the tip of the spear uh on this thing because that's exactly the kind of ball game we need to play it's all in just to reiterate kind of what he said at the beginning naming the name of the fbi agent who strong-armed him and took away his phone tony uh, was it tony giordano something like that I think it was giordano, giordano or something giordano. like that yeah that's another that's another reminder there are ample numbers of 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 people out there who are more than willing to do this to to other people more than a lot of brown shirts out there, whether it's Peter Navarro taking being taken down by the FBI at the airport or some cop in small town Idaho arresting a mom at the playground. One, if you're not a threat to the system, what the hell are you doing here? What, what are you doing? Two, if you are a threat to the system, they're more than willing to come after you, and there are more than enough brown shirts to carry out those jackbooted orders. So yet again, this is a theme this week that I can see already. The spirit of the age, the spirit of the age, if you are any threat to it at, at, at any level, will come for you eventually. And if you're not a threat, what are you doing? What are you doing here? Yeah. By the way. What are you doing? Yeah. I was just telling Steve, uh, Carlisle, my... Uh, school district last night uh the uh 
the athletic director who I've caught breaking policy multiple times at a borderline uh, illegal level uh, at my daughter's uh, soccer banquet had police there just to follow me around just so he wouldn't have to talk with me. I talked to him anyways, but he had them. It was clear. It was just me. I'm one guy. So this is absolutely right in every form. If you do not drink the Kool-Aid, you have a target on your back. And you have a target on your back anyway if you don't do anything. That's the point. That's what Aaron's saying. They're coming for all of us. I mean, these are, these are Cold War kind of tactics. Yeah. And just applied civilly because we're in yeah. the midst of a we're in the midst of a cold civil war. Yeah. Fun. I know you, you mean that in the opposite way. That's not fun, but you're right. Uh, it isn't, but like that's what I'm talking about. He, Peter's just like undaunted. I do love that. And last night I was like, I'm not like I'm not tiptoeing around anybody. I'm having the conversations I came here to have. You're the bad guys. You know, you don't, you don't, you're not going to make me kneel. You're not going to make me. And I think something to to understand is they know all of the legal precedents that he just cited for you when we were talking. Mm-hmm. And and this has been a routine game plan we have seen yes. with, this, with these folks since Biden took over. Which and we saw it some in the Obama era as well. I think Obama actually was subjected to more nine to nothing or unanimous rebukes by the U.S. Supreme Court more than any sitting president in American history. And it's this idea of, well, we'll just do what we want to do, and then we'll put the onus, we won't self-restrain. The oath of office means nothing to us. We we won't self-restrain because of what the Constitution says. We will just do what we want to do, and then we'll just find out, you know, we'll just essentially, from a constitutional perspective, kill them all and let the courts sort it out. And, you know, if the courts go against us, great. If they don't, cool, we win. I mean, how do you share a country? That's a total violation of the social compact. That's the, that's the Constitution as a dead letter. One side just openly says we will just violate it with impunity, and then we'll see if anybody stops us. And if they don't, then, hey, that's the new precedent. That's the new law. That's banana republic stuff, folks. That's what it is. And that's what we are. We're a first world banana republic. That's what we are. We'll stick around, do some bonus buy, sell, or hold in the overtime for Blaze TV subscribers. For the rest of you, we will see you tomorrow, right after Glenn Beck here on Blaze TV. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.